Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 88. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 24 and 25, which conclude the second book of Kings, and follow with a reflection on the former prophets and a consideration of sovereignty and its discontents. It's time. It's the deep breath before the plunge. The Babylonians are coming. Jehoiakim, installed by the pharaoh Necho, had been a vassal to the Babylonians, but no more. And so begins the first wave of the assault, which will lead to the ultimate destruction of Judah. And when Jehoiakim dies, he is replaced by his son Jehoiachin, whose claim to fame is that he surrenders himself to the Babylonians and is taken into captivity. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. The Babylonians also empty out the temple of all of its valuables, just as Yeshayahu foretold. And they seized all the city's elites, 10,000 people in all, and lead them away in chains. In Jehoiachin's stead, the Babylonians installed Sidkiyahu, figuring that he will be a good boy and behave himself. But not only was Sidkiyahu wicked, he was also insubordinate and churlish. So the Babylonians sent an army to deal with him as well. The Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem, which brings on a terrible famine. Eventually they burst through the walls. The king and his coterie flee in the night, but the Babylonians capture them. They slaughtered Sukiyahu's sons in front of him, one after the other, and then they put out his eyes and lead him away in chains. And then Nebuzdaran, the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's Republican Guard, sets fire to the temple and the palace and torches the rest of the city. He orders the troops to tear down the city walls and carry the survivors away into exile. Jerusalem is sacked and looted. Judah is laying waste. But Nebuzdaran leaves some of the poor behind to work the land and tend to the vineyards. And he appoints Gedaliah ben Achikam, son of Shaphan the scribe, to govern what's left. And he seems to evoke some confidence from the surviving remnant, encouraging the people to serve Nebuchadnezzar and live in peace. But some folks, perhaps some of the holdovers from the failed revolt, don't like his message of conciliation and assassinate him. And with that, the last vestige of an independent Jewish homeland is gone. Forever! There will be no more kings in Israel. Forever! Well, until the Hasmonean period, 22 generations later, when Shimon, the youngest Maccabee brother, became king of the Jews and high priest in 142 BCE. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. This episode is about conclusions in the fullest sense of the word, and I'd like to discuss two of them. We conclude the Book of Kings, and with that, we conclude the explicitly historic sweep of the Tanakh, the conclusion of this unit called the Former Prophets. We also conclude with the ultimate punishment, the one long promised for the persistent indulgence in idolatry. That's right, exile and dispersion. I want to consider what this means for the Tanakh, and for us folks who continue to live exiled and dispersed, and how we dare enjoy it. How dare you, sir? dare you? No, how dare you? No, no, how dare you? How dare you? No, no, my how dare you? You dare to dare me? How dare you? How dare me when I how dare you? You big peepee head. You are the peepee head. Mr. Booger Lips, caca mouth. So in thinking about the Book of Kings and its end, I started to think about the story of the Tanakh so far. And for many scholars, the Tanakh to this point 
has been one story, a continuous account starting with creation and finishing with Yehoiachin's release from Babylonian prison. For us Jews, this story has nine books. The Christians have 12, including Ruth. For traditional Jews, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the, with Penta equaling five, the Torah commands a special status as law book as well as driver of the plot. And then we have Joshua through to Kings, which forms a second part, an act two, to the Torah's first act, otherwise known as the Nevi'im Rishonim, or former prophets. But biblical scholars have taken a different view of the division looking more to the stylistic and theological differences between the nine books. And thus, they have adopted a different scheme. The most commonly accepted one was pitched by Martin Noth in the mid-20th century, where he argued that Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings form a unit, a Deuteronomistic history, authored, according to Noth, by one man without subsequent editing. He used existing material and stitched together a coherent organic narrative, including end-of-era summaries, sometime Noth believes, in the late 7th century BCE. And the Deuteronomist's message was clear, sin and you will suffer. Throughout the text, this message is borne out with each round of prophecies and divine interventions. Of course, in the decades that followed, other scholars challenged Noth's single-author theory. They challenged the coherence of the end-of-era summaries, they highlighted the dodgy chronologies, the variations on the theme of prophecy and fulfillment, as well as the consistency of message. And the wavering between on-message and off-message is significant. Is the Deuteronomist pro-monarchy or anti-monarchy? Does he hope for the covenant to be restored, or is it broken because of sinfulness? Is he monolatrous, that is, a believer in one god above others, or monotheistic? Which begs the question, is there such a thing as a Deuteronomist at all? Not in did this person exist, which he probably didn't, but did he or they or it have a coherent theology? If you step away from Noth's single author theory, you can make sense of the inconsistencies. You can say that everything that sounds like Deuteronomy, everything that posits that sinners will suffer, came from the Deuteronomist. Everything else was penned by a different author or authors, and later redactors stitched them in. Either way, you're still left with two distinct parts in the nine book series, books one through four, Genesis through Numbers forming one distinct unit, and books five through nine forming another. And at its center, Book 5, Deuteronomy. In a sense, one could argue that the former prophets as a unit is an attempt to grapple with Deuteronomy and its agenda. The priestly texts, like Leviticus, disagree with Deuteronomy, as does the Covenant Code. Iov disagrees with Tehillim and Mishle. Kohelet disagrees with everyone, including himself. And dissent seems to be everywhere in the Nevi'im and Ketuvim. But if you look at the specific books in the former prophets, this disputatiousness emerges too. Joshua's story, the narrative thrust, is very Deuteronomistic. The righteous prevail and conquer the land. But there are aspects of Joshua that go against that grain. The complete conquest is rolled back into a partial conquest. There is the spies story, and recall that spies are bad actors in Deuteronomy. It's like a distraction, as is the story of Achan ben Karmi. And the pact with the Givonites violates Deuteronomy's code against peace with Gentiles explicitly. 
And contrary to Deuteronomy's charge that a central worship site should be erected in the land, Yehoshua never really picks a spot. I mean, there's Gilgal, but then there's also Shechem. The book of Judges also wavers from Deuteronomy's party line. According to Deuteronomy, the Jews anoint their own leaders. But in each instance, in Judges, God sends the Savior. And God seems to be a really poor judge of character. And Judges closes with the people in chaos. The book of Samuel is also wobbly. When the people ask Shmuel for a king, as Deuteronomy permits, God misinterprets their request and chooses badly in each round. Shaul is crowned but soon removed. David seems to be on task, but he, as God's chosen, suffers tremendously for it until he becomes king. And Avshalom should have been chosen by God, but he was passed over. And even more chaos ensues. The Book of Kings is no better in this regard. It's a hodgepodge of narratives that resist a chronology. There are prophecies that are fulfilled, while others are not. Or if it's fulfilled, it's done so ironically, which is not very Deuteronomistic at all. In short, if the message of the Deuteronomist and the former prophets as history was to explain slash justify the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem as punishment from God, there is a bit of a male system error. It does not compute. The destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, the loss of the temple and Jewish sovereignty, the woeful punishment of exile, become central themes only in the final chapters of Kings and can only be attributed to a later author. And it's this theme I want to consider as someone who, although has roots in a sovereign Jewish state through family, citizenship, army service, and all that, lives in Galut, that is, exiled, dispersed, in a state of punishment. I own it, Lord Father! Cast you out! In one particular narrative of Jewish history, ever since the defeat and destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, there has been a thrum of longing for the land of Israel. We'll get to the specific lament in the book of Psalms much later, but we know the sentiment, the sadness, the weeping by the rivers of Babylon. Even today, we memorialize that loss at the moment of great joy under the chuppah, the wedding canopy, as we recite the oath of the exiled. Im eshkachech Yerushalayim tishkach yimini, tidbak lishoni lechiki im lo ezkarechi, im lo aale et Yerushalayim al rosh simchati. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I remember thee not. If I not said Jerusalem above my chiefest joy. Mazel tov, mazel tov, And we're weeping because of our sins, because our exile was well-deserved, a fulfillment of what Moshe promised in Deuteronomy 28, quote, And it shall be as the Lord once delighted in you by doing good for you and by making you many, thus will the Lord delight in you by causing you to perish and by destroying you, and you shall be pulled up from the soil that you are entering to possess. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples from the edge of the earth to the other edge of the earth, you will serve their other gods whom you have not known, either you or your fathers of wood and of stone. Yet among those nations you will not find repose, nor shall there be rest for the sole of your foot. The Lord will give you there a shuddering heart, failing eyes, and languishing breath. Your life will hang by a thread before you. You will be terrified night and day, and you will not trust in the security of your life. At daybreak you will say, Who would make it sunset? And at sunset you will say, Who would make it daybreak? out of the terror of your heart that you feel in terror 
out of the sight of your eyes that you see. In this narrative, the Deuteronomistic historical narrative, exile is a terrible punishment. But just as cliche follows the rain, there will be a return. Two chapters later, Moshe says, quote, The Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He will return to collect you from all the peoples wherein God has scattered you. If you be thrust away to the ends of the heavens, from there the Lord your God will collect you. From there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you to the land that your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will do well by you and make you many more than your fathers. In short, exile bad, homeland good. Diaspora bad, Israel good. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? One can think of this Deuteronomistic historic narrative as coterminous with the 20th century nationalist Israel-centered narrative, the Zionist narrative. King David is the venerated hero, the warrior, the securer of borders, the forger of the peace. As are the Hasmonean kings and Bar Kokhba and Ben-Gurion, they are heroes because they refused to live under Gentile rule. They stood up to fight for Jewish sovereignty. Almost as important, they stood up to fight when other Jews could or would not. They were true Jewish men, actualized and realized. And the masters of the universe! However, there is another narrative where the rabbis of the Mishnah and Talmud are the inspirational leaders. Yochanan ben Zakkai, who helped a small yeshiva in Yavne become the new center for Jewish life post-Roman destruction. Or later, the great medieval rationalist philosopher Maimonides, who tried to reconcile the philosophy of the Greeks and science with the Torah. Or later, the much maligned Enlightenment thinker Spinoza, whose work laid the groundwork for the Enlightenment itself. Or Franz Kafka, one of the leading figures in the 20th century literature. Or Sigmund Freud, who gave us the whole new way of thinking about Oedipus and cigars. They are the heroic creators of a vibrant and abundant diasporic Jewish culture that embraced and enriched both European Western and Muslim Arab cultures. And the thing is that the Deuteronomist sets these narratives up as a binary opposition where the first is good and the second is bad. By the way, Spinoza rejected this kind of dualist thinking at its most basic level. Oh, damn! Now, I could go into the weeds here a bit to talk about binary oppositions and language and society and bring in Ferdinand de Saussure and geek out about the structuralist and post-structuralist theories and debates about meaning. But I'll spare those of you who didn't go to graduate school in the humanities in the 90s and simply say that one cannot conceive of good if we do not understand evil, or more prosaically, one cannot conceive of vacation if we do not understand work. And there is a relationship between these two contradictory ideas or states of being or concepts, etc. But here's the thing. When we think of good and evil or vacation and work or any other binary that helps organize the world like male and female, white and black, straight and gay, we quickly appreciate that within each pairing there is a fundamental inequality. The first term usually is preferred or privileged over the second and with privilege comes power. For example... For centuries, the dominant group in Western society has been white, straight men, and every other group, be they black or women or gay, were subordinate to the dominant group. Black people and women were once regarded as property of straight white men, and being gay was often criminalized. So when you set up this stark binary opposition of Israel and diaspora and set up Israel first as the ideal, as the privileged item in the binary, you are necessarily negating the diaspora. 
And this was a thing. It even had its own term, Shlilatagola, literally translated as negation of the diaspora. But Gola is a nicer way of saying Galut, which means exile. Just like diaspora is a nicer way of saying exile too. You'll often see dispersion. It's used also, but all these words have a whiff of a negative connotation about them. So, Shlilata Gola was a prominent strain of Zionist ideology for decades. I'm looking at you, Brenner and Berdachevsky. Even Achadaam and A.D. Gordon towed this line, albeit a bit more moderately. This strain also asserted itself in the ideology of Ben-Gurion's Mapai political party as well. Israel's founding father conceived of exile as utter dependence, while Israel is all about independence. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day! Since 1948, there has been some acknowledgement of the diaspora, but mostly resignation. Especially since the diaspora just didn't wither and disappear with the establishment of the State of Israel. And periodically, leading figures in Israeli society come out with statements about how diaspora Judaism is inauthentic and rootless. I'm looking at you, Aleph Bet Yoshua. And of late, there have been some folks in the diaspora community who have articulated a rejection of Israel as Judaism's dominant term. They don't reject Israel or deny its right to exist, it's just not for them. And I'm not talking about those Neture Karta or Satmer Hasidim who oppose the state of Israel on the grounds of religious hubris, like, you know, the Zionists jumped the gun and tried to force God's hand and all that. I'm talking about mainstream Jews who feel that Israel's occupation of the West Bank a temporary arrangement, see that in air quotes, temporary arrangement that has lasted for more than 70% of Israel's lifetime, has damaged Israel so profoundly that they no longer feel that Israel reflects their Jewishness and don't want to be associated with Israel anymore. And these folks are not exclusively tree-hugging radical lefty haters either. They just don't agree with the notion that the diaspora is bad and the Jewish nation-state is good. Their sense of their Jewishness is based on the notion that all they value about Jewish history happened in the diaspora. And besides, the occupation of the West Bank has compromised Israel's moral backbone and international standing. But here's the thing, simply flipping the opposition is not a solution either, because all you're doing is affirming the power relations. You're saying domination of one term by another is okay, you just prefer if your term was the one on top. And what these folks in the diaspora are seeking is not an inversion of the terms. They don't want the diaspora to be preeminent. They just don't want it to be ignored or its contributions or opinions overlooked. What's interesting about this dynamic also is that diaspora institutions and mainstream diaspora Judaisms generally affirm the existing binary. In a sense, they affirm their own second-class status. They wouldn't articulate it in quite that way. They would say something like, we support Israel, we love Israel, we derive much of our identity and community cohesiveness through the support of Israel. Israel is very, very important to us. And that's good. But when a prominent Israeli appears at a public event and says diaspora Jews are inauthentic or a prominent Orthodox rabbi sitting in the Israeli cabinet maligns reform and conservative Jewish observance, they don't really push back that much. I mean... It's kind of awkward. However, when a fellow diaspora Jew pushes back at the binary itself and comes out and expresses discomfort or criticism of an Israeli policy, which they feel goes against the grain of their Jewish values, the local blowback is intense. 
And the thing is, we don't have to affirm this opposition. We can establish a different relationship, but it's very hard, and here's why. Decisions in Israel about Israel are determined by the vote. Don't mind the occupation? Vote one way. Revile the occupation? Vote a different way. The thing is, diaspora Jews don't get to vote in Israel. And you may think this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it is what it is. And even Israelis living overseas don't get to vote unless they're living overseas on behalf of the Israeli government. And as for the Israelis living in Israel who would agree with those diaspora Jews and their critiques of Israeli policy, they've been losing practically every election for the past 40 years. And when it comes to the establishment Jewish institutions and their policies, diaspora Jews don't get to vote on those either. So what do you do when you're basically disenfranchised, having no voice at all? Well, you can opt out. That's one option that the generally disenfranchised don't have. You can say, thanks, Jewish people, but no thanks. What you're offering me, I don't want. I'm a citizen and I have rights in this other realm of my life. So I'm leaving now to live my life as an American or Canadian or whatever. In other words... How would you like to suck my balls? Or you can push back. You don't have to accept the binary being pushed on you by the partisans on either side, which, by the way, is the position of the post-structuralists who argued for deconstruction, the moment when the binary opposition is thought to contradict itself and undermine its own authority. So perhaps, as we did in this episode and looked to the internal contradictions in this unit called the former prophets and its Deuteronomistic party line, we highlight those contradictions to undermine the narrative's authority, and we do this not because we wish to undermine the narrative, just to point out its inconsistencies and to knock it down a few pegs, because internal contradictions are fine. We all have them, we all do them, and that's okay. And once we acknowledge that, we can work on repairing the relationship between the two terms to make it more equitable and amenable and come to some rapprochement. That's something to look forward to as we move into the latter prophets, the Nevi'im Achronim, and then the Ketuvim. We will look for that other voice, the one that Eliyahu heard in the wilderness, that still small voice, which tells a different story, and we'll try to harmonize them together. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast, or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or, if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 89, a special book club spoiler special about Yochi Brandes' The Secret Book of Kings. We will be joined by the book's English translator and Judaism Unbound host, Dan Liebenson.